Welcome to The Institute, a podcast on the lives and works of fellows and friends of the Institute for the Arts and Humanities at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. In this episode, IAH Director Patricia Parker speaks with Howard University professor and American social and cultural historian Ana Lucia Araujo. Dr. Araujo delivered the 29th annual Mary Stevens Rexford Memorial Lecture in European Studies on February 23, 2023. Her work explores the history of slavery and the Atlantic slave trade and their present-day legacies, including the long history of demands of reparations for slavery and colonialism. The 2023 Rexford Lecture, titled Slavery as History and Memory, explored these themes. Before the lecture, Dr. Otto Ujo sits down with Director Parker for this conversation. We're so happy to welcome you to Chapel Hill for the 29th uh, Reckford Lecture. Um, thank you, Dr. Araujo, for being um, our speaker for this lecture. Um, in just a couple of hours, you will be delivering that lecture, and um, we'll be here in Hyde Hall uh, for your remarks. So thank you for taking some time to have this uh, discussion for our podcast uh, prior to to that. And thank you for um, the work that you do. Thank you for having me, Dr. Parker. So before we dive in um, uh, to your lecture, I want to take a step back and, and um, ask you to talk a, a bit about your research more broadly. Uh, what led you to focus on the transatlantic slave trade? Um, it, this is a, a great question and a, a question that, of course, uh, over time uh, I have been asking myself uh, uh, what uh, did lead me to, to do this work, uh, mainly because I was born and raised in Brazil, that is the country that uh, during the era of the Atlantic slave trade was deeply shaped by, by Africa, by the African continent, uh, because the country brought uh, Portugal and Brazil brought uh, enslaved Africans, uh, then almost uh, six million enslaved Africans during the era of the Atlantic slave trade. And it's still today, Brazil is the, the country with the largest black population uh, in the Western Hemisphere. But when I was raised uh, and when I was educated in Brazil, when I went to school, this story was totally uh, evacuated. Uh, then, uh, uh, then black people and black culture and the history and the legacies of slavery were certainly visible uh, everywhere. But uh, there was no recognition of these uh, atrocities, and there was also no recognition of uh, the importance of Africa in uh, building Brazil. Then it is when I left Brazil in 1999, uh, and I started studying uh, first uh, travel accounts of European uh, travelers who went to Brazil in the 19th century. And uh, at that time, as uh, I was doing, uh, I was being trained as an art historian. And uh, I finished that uh, PhD program in art history. Uh, and most of what I did uh, in that uh, PhD was to look at how uh, enslaved people and also indigenous populations, how they were represented by those uh, white Europeans who went to Brazil in the 19th century. But at the end of the day, uh, my interest uh, from that work, be it became clear that it was uh, this long history of slavery in Brazil and this long history of the, the African presence in Brazil. And this led me to, to look at, at how slavery was memorialized in Brazil 
and uh, in West Africa, in what is present-day uh, Republic of Benin. Then I went to do uh, uh, field work and arch archival research uh, in the Republic of Benin uh, and came back also to Brazil to, to do this work. Then it was part of my own distance, the distance that I took from Brazil uh, when I, I moved to, to Canada at the end of the, the past century that led me to decide to, uh, to work on this, uh, on this uh, topic. Hmm. So so fascinating the way that your personal history and your even your academic intellectual history in terms of being an art historian, mm -hmm. all of that comes together in your work. I know that um, for your for the Reckford lecture today, you will be focusing on uh, slavery as history and memory. Um, which is um, a riff on your 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 book, uh, Slavery in the Age of Memory: Engaging the Past. Um, and so can you talk about that intersection of, of history and memory and, and how those two concepts are both related and are distinct? Mm-hmm. Yes, uh, we used to, uh, to, to refer to history and memory sometimes uh, interchangeable. Uh, uh, they are interchangeable concepts. Sometimes uh, we try to uh, draw a line to separate uh, these uh, two concepts. But at the end of the day, then either history and memory, they are forms of discourse that allows us to, um, to engage the past, to engage what happened in the past. Uh, the difference is uh, we can uh, establish some elements that are different. Uh, when you are, uh, when memory engages the past, this is an engagement that is happening in the present. Then uh, everything about memory is happening now. Then the past is uh, is an excuse. We can say that way, but uh, what is what matters is what is uh, going on uh, in the in the present. History is not very different, but the history has that ambition of. Uh, uh, addressing the past while eliminating the component that is about the present. Then history that has this ambition of being objective, uh, of trying to see things from a neutral point of view. Uh, then when you are talking about uh, academic history, but at the end of the day, like memory, uh, because memory is always about a, a point of view, is always about lived experiences. But at the end of the day, when you are writing history, we are, we are doing that in the present. Then the two dimensions, they are always uh, connected. One uh, has this ambition of being objective. Um, and we as historians, we try to be objective, but this, of course, is, uh, remains um, uh, uh, an illusion. <laughs> then uh, this, uh, this is why this, this dialogue, I think it is, uh, it is important, and uh, I will be uh, discussing more about this uh, tonight. Mm. Well, it's really, um, I, I think it's really a wonderful uh, frame for this so many conversations, right, to make those connections between history and memory and then also the distinctions. And I, I love um, that you, you know, as you talk about memory necessarily being in the present, right? Um, um, and that's, um, you know, that's something that makes it distinct. So one topic that is very present 
<laughs> is reparations. Mm-hmm. And um, I know you've researched and written about the long history of reparations. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's in the present and also in the past. So can you share more about that? What do you think people may know or maybe misunderstand about reparations and, and its history? Yes, then uh, the, 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 the way reparations entered my work, it was exactly at the time when I was doing research in, uh, in the Republic of Benin, uh, then this was about 2005, and I was looking at the time at uh, how uh, groups, uh, NGOs, governments, uh, institutions, how they were uh, trying to uh, create initiatives to memorialize slavery in the public space, to the creation of monuments, festivals, uh, uh, memorials, and there was a lot of debates at the time, uh, even in the newspapers in Republic of Benin, about, uh, yes, we want monuments, it's important to remember about the slavery, but what about reparations? Then, uh, whereas monuments and memorials and perhaps uh, memorialization is a form of symbolic reparation every time that the topic of Um, uh, financial or material reparations uh, came into the debate, uh, then it it became very um, uh, contentious. And uh, at that time, there was this idea every time that someone would refer to reparations, they would refer to the conference, the UN conference of Durban in 2001. And I started telling myself, but... Uh, how it's possible that calls for reparation just started in 2001 and how it's possible that historians are not looking at this history because most of those who wrote about, they are economists, political scientists, sociologists, people in uh, who also are legal scholars, but not historians. Then I, I, I accumulated a lot of material about those uh, debates and I decided to to, that it was necessary perhaps to put this history together uh, from the first calls that we know, because there are certainly other calls that I do not cover, of course, in my work, but that it started uh, indeed uh, when slavery was still there, then in 18th century, and uh, these calls for reparations, they started not last week, not with Tanais Coates, not with a Durban Conference, but it started indeed uh, more than 200 years uh, ago. And uh, this is something that I think that people do not know because today people, they say a lot, oh yeah, but this happened a, a, a long time ago when uh, today the, the victims are no longer alive, the perpetrators are no longer alive. But indeed, when they were alive, when the victims of uh, slavery, those who were uh, enslaved then uh, since the beginning of uh, this, uh, the, the, the Atlantic slave trade to the Americas uh, started, when they were still alive, they were asking, they were calling for reparations, and their demands have been dismissed uh, since then. I love the way that you make this um, argument that when history, when historians are involved in these, some of these questions, it sort of fills out uh, part of the picture. As you say, the economists and the political scientists and so forth may um, have part of the picture, but um, having historians and to uh, think about this long history of the victims of, of, of enslavement um, raising 
these, this question of, of reparations is really, really um, interesting and, and um, useful, I think, as we start to continue the analysis uh, of this. I, I want to say at this point that, um, you know, this is such an important um, time for you to be on our campus uh, this semester uh, where the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill is absolutely wrestling and reckoning with the history of slavery at this place. Um, and I think part of what your work does is to bring that larger, broader context of of place, I think, right? That And, and then connecting across uh, in your your case, in transnationally um, and across geographies. But we are um, hosting the International Consortium uh, University Studying Slavery. Uh, that conference, their spring conference, will be on our campus in March. We're excited that your lecture and then a, a couple of other lectures that we've had on campus have are really providing this education to publics, to, to uh, faculty, to, to students, and speaking of that, what do you see as the role of universities and, and places of higher education in being a part of these discussions um, about history and memory and reckoning and, and with race and, and racial slavery? I think that all universities, either in the United States or uh, in other countries where slavery existed and where slavery was uh, very important, the role of the universities is, uh, on the one hand, to conduct research about uh, this, this past atrocities and uh, to seek the truth about these this atrocities. And uh, also, in addition to conduct research, uh, the other dimension is the, the teaching uh, of this, this history. And uh, of course, that either in the United States or even in countries like Brazil, that then about 20 years ago, there was a legislation that passed to make mandatory the teaching of African history and Afro-Brazilian culture. Uh, this is still something that is not fully implemented. Uh, in the United States, we do not have that, uh, even though history of Africa has been taught uh, here and in other universities for, for longer than, than Brazil. But I think that the importance of this kind of initiative of this group of studies, uh, universities uh, studying slavery is to not only look at the involvement of these institutions with the, the institution of slavery, because at the end of the day, uh, always institutions uh, in slave societies, everybody had a connection uh, then with uh, slavery and the Atlantic slave trade. But uh, to recognize this, this long history, to then to, to, to create mechanisms to research, to continue researching this, this history. And I believe that even if we have this impression that, oh, everything was said, everything was done, there are so many books, there are uh, so many studies, there is a lot uh, to, to be done. There is still a lot of archives to, to, to be uh, explored. Then uh, this uh, kind of initiative should be done, but also programs to teach uh, this history. And this is the, the, the university is very important because it, it is at the university level that we form also, that we train teachers, uh, people then who will go to the schools and who will teach this, this history. And we need that uh, not only in one city, one university, or one state, but we need this all over the country. And 
not only the United States. I know that for people who may be uh, bothered about this, the emphasis on uh, slavery in the United States, in other countries also it is problematic. Then countries like France, like Brazil, are also uh, the Netherlands, Portugal, Spain, that are also fighting because of the need of uh, recognizing and teaching this, this history. But I think that the United States uh, is the country that uh, it still leads these this initiatives. And I think that this kind of conference is very, is very important uh, to, to create a solid uh, and permanent measures that will make this history taught uh, to our uh, youth and our children and uh, the teachers that uh, we want to train. It's so interesting that you say that, I believe I heard you say that in all of these discourses across the world, um, who may be thinking about teaching the history and complicated histories, if we want to talk, call it that, that the United States should be should be leading, is seen as the leader of teaching this history? Did it, I just want to make sure first that I got that right, that you said that. I, I would say mm-hmm. I, I don't think that the United States should lead, mm-hmm. but uh, in fact, here, this country, with all the the problems that we have in this country, uh, this country is, is still the country where we discuss the most about this, this legacy and this, this history. Then through movies, mm-hmm. uh, through uh, documentary films, uh, the historiography of slavery in this country is stronger than anywhere else. Uh, the English language is the ling- language that makes the works uh, circulate. And I, I love Brazil, and I want to center Brazil uh, in my work, but uh, very few people, they read Portuguese. Then if for people to know about the history of slavery in Brazil, a book needs to be published in the United States and in English. Mm. Then, um, and here is the country also that even if you take in terms of the number of museums that tell, even if it's imperfectly uh, that tell the, the history of slavery, most of the institutions are here in the United States. For example, the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., it's a recent institution, but that exhibition is slavery uh, and freedom is bigger, much bigger, several times bigger than the of entire International Slavery Museum in Liverpool. That is not in London, that is in Liverpool. Then there are things that are already happening here, but I just think that they should continue happening and continue developing and not the opposite. We should not stop uh, talking about this history and teaching this history and researching this history. Uh, It's uh, the opposite. That is a fascinating piece of information, and and it provides uh, context to my next question. Uh, Before I get to that question, I want to add to what you just laid out there in terms of the resources that we have in the United States in terms of studying slavery. I would add to that the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill Libraries. Uh, It is one of the largest and and foremost collection on the institution of slavery in the world. And we, we in fact, do attract uh, people from all over the world to study that. So what you just laid out for us then is really this interesting contrast to this current public discourse about the teaching of African-American history. 
So I wonder what you make of that, given that this is the place. I mean, you've just made this really wonderfully compelling argument of the pervasiveness of this history, not just in, I mean, not just as it's taught in our schools, because it probably isn't taught as well and comprehensively as it should be currently in our schools, but the fact that it's so available in all of these other communicative contexts, film, art, museums, collections. What do you make of this this public discourse about whether or not we, that African-American history should be taught? And what, what is the role of humanities and in hu, history scholars in that discourse? Of course, that I, 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 I think that this history must be taught and uh, at the limit should be mandatory. Then, but I am in the United States. Then it's not a country that is centralized that any measure like this could be, uh, uh, could be mandatory. Uh, but I think that because it's decentralized as well, there mm-hmm. are many other channels through which this history uh, circulates and is taught. Uh, even if we take the example of the memory of enslaved people and their stories, this memory was preserved because it was passed. It's, it's about collective memory that was passed down from generation uh, to generation. There is no way to erase this this memory. From times to times, there are politicians, governments, groups that uh, try to impose these views. But uh, there is always a new wave that comes to overthrow the, the, the old one. Mm-hmm. Then what you are seeing now, it's much more about battles of, uh, uh, f- for the memory of slavery than a memory that is in black and white, than the groups that politicize this history, this past, in order to uh, tell a story that, that evacuates uh, all the, the, the atrocities that uh, were committed. But on the other hand, there are many other initiatives that come uh, uh, to make a counterpoint. And uh, I think that the the records when you are referring to the history and this I think that is one of the, the important points that of history itself when you refer to the the records that we have here at the university in this uh, in this collection the records are not disappearing the records are there to be studied and to be explored and uh, the role of us in the humanities or historians, artists, uh, whatever you are doing, is to use what is there for us in order to tell this, this story. And this story can be told uh, in multiple ways. That is not only uh, in the classroom. It is in the classroom as well. I'm not saying that we should not, and it should not fighting to have this history uh, taught in the classrooms, but it goes much beyond uh, that. And I think that uh, these are ways, perhaps, for us to to see other uh, to see alternatives mm. in order to make this story uh, visible and uh, taught and uh, also disseminated. Well, you certainly are doing your share of that work, and we're, we're very grateful for, for the work that, that you're doing to raise the arguments, to provide these tools for us to think about these histories and, and how it should be taught. So thank you for that. And, I, and you are, you're working on some, some new, two new um, manuscripts that, are, um, that you're working on, one with Cambridge um, University Press and, and the other with Chicago. Tell us about those projects. Yes, the, the project with Chicago is titled Humans in Shackles, then in an Atlantic History of Slavery. And that is a book that is um, a general history of slavery uh, in the Americas that uh, has three uh, main focus. 
then the, the, the focus is, on the one hand, to give the, the due importance, the due place uh, to Africa in the, the, this history. Usually when you are teaching, when you are writing histories of slavery in the Americas, uh, everything starts in the Americas, and we uh, just consider uh, how Africa continue playing a, a role during the entire era of the Atlantic slave trade and the slavery. Then this is uh, one point. And the second point is the importance of Brazil, the centrality of Brazil as the country that uh, brought uh, to its, sh its shores then the largest number of Africans during the era of the Atlantic slave trade. And the other point is women, then enslaved women, because even though in general there were two enslaved men who were brought to the Americas for one woman, enslaved women were still those who, through their wombs, they, they created new enslaved people. And also, they performed all kinds of activities that usually are not uh, at all highlighted in these histories that usually focus on this broad economic picture. Then this is a book for general audiences focusing on these three uh, themes or three pillars. And then the other book is a more of what we call, and I don't like this term, but what we call microhistory. Mm -hmm. There is uh, a book that focuses on the, the importance of material culture during the era of the Atlantic slave trade. Then I follow indeed one object that was fabricated in France and was given as a gift by slave traders in the 18th century to an African agent in West Central Africa at the time on the Luangu coast. And that object uh, was to please that agent was an intermediary in the Atlantic slave trade and the, in all the, the trade in enslaved people. But the object was stolen from there and ended up in the country that is present-day Republic of Benin, that is Dahomey, Dahomey the, of the Kingdom of Dahomey, that was the theme of this recent movie by with uh, Viola Davis, mm -hmm. The Woman King. And this object ended up there in a place that is far away from wha where it was brought initially. And from there, it was looted by the French at the end of the 19th century. Then this object was looted as part of the, the colonial wars. And the object is a way for me to connect the importance of the material culture during the era of the Atlantic slave trade and also to show uh, the connections between uh, the Atlantic slave trade and the rise of European colonialism in, in Africa. Hmm. Then it's a story, indeed. Yes. Fascinating. I am looking forward to those <laughs> projects being uh, made available. I'll, I'll make two comments, one for each. The first is um, in your first project with uh, so important to tell the history of women in um, the area of, of era of, of enslavement and the, and the lives of, of women. I mean, those histories figure into my own work um, on leadership. My uh, first book was about African-American women's leadership and sort of this historical legacy of resistance in African-American women's history that is still in the present. I mean, as I interviewed these senior executive women, they talked about these traditions. And then when I went into, you know, to the archives and, 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 and also in literature that, that talk about these histories, it helps me make this case for uh, this, this uh, tradition of resistance in history that still is around community building and community engagement, which is where my work focuses. And then this fascinating study about this that connects all of these different um, geographies and, and by following one object. And as you say, the stories that come. And I, I think that this becomes, um, you know, connecting back to the last um, question around the importance of teaching this histories. It really is the 
you know, the stories, the having these stories and, and the humanizing work that stories do of, of people who were enslaved, but also of people in the present. I mean, I know that it's very meaningful to me personally that I inherited from my mother her grandfather's Bible, and her grandfather was enslaved, um, and she cared for him uh, for at the, toward the end of his life. Uh, he died in, in the uh, early 1930s, in, in his 80s, and he, um, she had his Bible, and he read his Bible, he read the paper, he also read to other members of the community, because not everyone was literate, but he was, and you know, having that history, just personal history from my mother, and knowing that there are other stories that are untold that maybe have been lost, um, that uh, that your work is helping to connect us to to that to those histories. So again, I want to thank you for for your work. So we'll end the podcast uh, our our conversation today with two questions that we ask for each of our guests. Um, uh, especially people who are uh, scholars in the academy. So the first one is um, what has been your favorite undergraduate or graduate course to teach and why? Mm-hmm. I would say that uh, over the past five or six years, I ha- I, I've been teaching the undergraduate course that is Introduction to African Diaspora. Uh, we have uh, two levels of this course, one that goes up to the 19th century, another one that goes up to the 20th century. I teach the first one. And uh, I've been teaching them this for a, a couple of years. At Howard, it's mandatory. Then uh, most of our students, they have, at least at the college, they need to take these courses. I love to teach this course, and it's, it's much this course that shaped this book that I am doing with uh, Chicago, that uh, it's a course that uh, forces us to think uh, the history of the um, of black people in general in the Americas as uh, starting in Africa and as coming back to Africa, as circulating uh, in Africa. Then at the same time, of course, we study the, the, the history of the Atlantic slave trade in this course, but the course is uh, about how uh, these African uh, traditions, how Africa as a homeland, how Africa as a continent that has a very long history uh, remains alive uh, in the, the black communities. Then this is a, a course that I have been working a lot and has been very important for 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 my work and mm. that I love to teach I would love to take that course actually <laughs> uh, so it sounds uh, fascinating and finally what is a book that has uh, changed your life you can answer it in that way or just what is a book that you'd like for us to know that about that's important to you well there are many books there are many books but I think that one book that currently is a book that comes to mind as a book that um, uh, was important for me and is important to me is uh, beloved by uh, mm-hmm. Toni Morrison. Mm-hmm. Then, uh, because of all the things that you are talking about, then uh, and also because uh, then the, not only the, the issue of women, how women resisted uh, slavery, how the the, the problem of uh, motherhood. Uh, that is something that was imposed and at the same time uh, would uh, become a ways uh, for enslaved women to to resist. Mm-hmm. Then this is a book that was uh, transformative. Uh, I wrote uh, many years ago an article about uh, enslaved women in my home state in Brazil uh, who committed infanticide during the era, during the early 19th century. 
and um, committed infanticide because they were in a situation that they could not take anymore and uh, was a, a way to, to respond to, to their oppression. And uh, this is something that happened in the south of Brazil, but uh, at the same time, that book by Toni Morrison was uh, influential. And then, of course, that book has several siblings because many other people wrote about these this topics. Then uh, in the United States, my colleague uh, at Howard, Nikki Taylor, uh, Marcela Echeverri also uh, wrote about similar stories in Colombia. Then uh, the book was, uh, it was this kind of a book that brought me to, to navigate uh, and to discover um, things that perhaps were there but that I was not aware of. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you so much for sharing that. Well, thank you. I, I know that you are going to share so much more in your uh, lecture, so we're excited about that and welcome others to, to watch the recording. Those of you who are listening to this podcast, um, the recording of um, Dr. Arojo's um, lecture will be on our website, so please be sure to catch that. Thank you again. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm looking forward to the, the lecture. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Institute podcast. You can learn more about Dr. Araujo's work and watch a recording of the Rackford Lecture at our website, iah.unc.edu. There, you can also learn more about our upcoming events, programs, grants, and leadership opportunities for UNC Chapel Hill faculty, or read stories about our fellows. You can subscribe to the Institute on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Thanks for joining us. 